0: Ah. Hello there. Servus. My name is Sean Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today we're going to talk about Juan Guaido being ousted as the opposition leader in Venezuela. We're going to talk about the ongoing election drama that continues in Brazil and one of the latest escalations in that ongoing drama. And then we'll talk about the House Republicans taking the forced the vote strategy. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have Ukrainian missile strikes on a Russian temporary troop housing facility in the city of Makayevka, where around 60 Russian troops were killed. And this was made into a a great big deal, well, um, for like a day or two. Then it sort of fell out of the news. And I just found it interesting that 60 Russians dying in a single instant was a big deal. And... uh, that, that That's a big number for the Russians. But yet when we compare losses like that to what we can observably see that the Ukrainians have lost, uh, they, they went from 350,000 to somewhere beneath 190,000 now. We'll get that number eventually. But that's a lot of people to just go down like that. That is 160,000 men lost. In what? We're almost at the halfway point through January. So 10, 10, and a half months. That's, it's just insane. The discrepancy here between what's considered big for one side, be it, and how small that is when we compare that to what would be normal for the other side to lose. 60 men dying in an instant is big for the Russians, yet thousands dying in mere days is normal for the Ukrainians. I mean, I, we'll go back to the, the Kherson offensive when it first began back in the late summer. Uh, the first wave, not the second one that actually got the city of Kharkov when the Russians withdrew. But that first wave, uh, which was really a series of assaults that I broke up into different waves... They lost thousands in the space of two weeks which came out to literally hundreds a day at the height of that offensive and they were carrying out the Kharkov offensive at the same time. The Russians were withdrawing so they suffered fewer casualties taking the region around Kharkov but even then you're, you're suffering these terrible losses. So I just found it interesting that 60 Russians dying in a single instance was huge news Because it it was big for them and I just find that discrepancy between perspectives so Interesting in a grim way because it's like it's war. These are people dying, but 60 being big for one side and thousands dying being you know normal for the other that's a really big discrepancy And is probably foreboding and foreshadowing something to come that can't possibly spell out anything good for the Ukrainians. I'll just say that much. Uh, I wanted to touch up on that subject. Uh, And while we're still on it, we have Putin ordering a ceasefire on the Orthodox Christmas. This was uh, about a 36-hour ceasefire, if I'm not mistaken. Not all parts of the front did, you know, stop fighting. Especially consider uh, it's it was a unilateral declaration. It's not like... I mean, the Ukrainians had no reason to honor it. I mean, they could have if they wanted to, but what good would that have done them? They could have got a, a day and a half of rest, maybe put some reinforcements in, and then they just go right back to getting bombed the next day. Like I, They might have been better off taking the deal, for this ceasefire, but the ceasefire wouldn't changed much strategically. They just would have gotten a day and a half of reprieve, so maybe it would have been better to take it, maybe not. It is what it is, uh, but I, I had a feeling it wasn't going to work. I mean, we saw the effectiveness of unilateral ceasefires being declared back in the in the heyday of the Ethiopian civil war that just passed, where they were fighting the Tigrayan forces and then the central government the federal government of ethiopia declares a ceasefire and the ceasefire is immediately broken because they never once negotiated that with the tigrayans so they 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 worked it out on the end when they sat down with the tigrayans before calling for before you know announcing a ceasefire and that's how we got the the end of the conflict that we have now in ethiopia but before we had covered it they had just announced that they were going to do a ceasefire and that they, they it was a it was it was a unilateral declaration i'm like well how if you can't you can't just declare this there's two parties in a war the other side has to agree to this you can't you can't just announce you're going to have a ceasefire and expect the other side to just go well i guess we're having a ceasefire now we're just going to stop That that's not that's not how that works <laughs> so i i saw a similar thing here happen with this ceasefire for the orthodox christmas and I expected as much for the from the Ukrainians. Why would they honor that? It's unilateral. They they weren't a part of the negotiations when this ceasefire was talked about. So, so there's that. And we have Putin receiving the Medal of Honor from Milorad Dodik from the the Serbian Bosnian s- sort of separatist region, if you want to call it that, the Republic of Srpska. And he got this medal of honor for his, quote, patriotic concern and love, end quote, for Bosnian Serbs. So we have heat stirring up in Bosnia and the Balkans because not just do we have the leader of this, uh, uh, you know, I'll just say separatist region of Bosnia giving the medal of honor to Putin, but we also have Serbia who requested to send troops and policemen a thousand of them collectively to kosovo and their request to send these troops to this part of it this part of the world that serbia regards as a part of itself but nato regards as an independent country uh nato refused to allow serbia to move their troops into this into kosovo so we have tensions there and this request came after a a border skirmish between them and kosovo Which, as far as the Serbians are concerned, means uh, fighting, internal fighting, because they don't recognize Kosovo as an independent country. They recognize it as being under foreign occupation by NATO, which it is. NATO has refused the movement of those troops. We'll see what becomes of this, although I'm not sure NATO is in a position to be looking for fights right now. But then again, they can't just... Uh, they can't just walk away. I mean, we can. America can don't, don't don't mistake me. We could go away anytime we wanted to and we'd be better off for doing so. But I guess from a certain perspective, it might be seen as a sign of weakness if you do that and so you, you can never do that. Uh, but NATO and Serbia look like they're going to get into it. Now whether that It results in a shooting war, remains to be seen, but it looks like we have some diplomatic tensions there. We have Turkey and Syria agreeing to designate Kurdish militant groups as their common enemy, effectively forging a de facto alliance against Kurdish militant groups and technically against the United States because America backs these Kurdish militant groups. So if Turkey and Syria and the Russians are working against these militant groups. Because the Russians work with Syria as their ally. And that means you have three major powers in this region. Well, two plus Syria. Working against the Kurds, well, you know, three. We can count Iran, even though they're not exactly privy to the discussions right now, but they're a player. That only leaves us backing the, the, the Kurds. And that means we're going to be the ones humiliated when the Kurds get well, curb stomped. Or, uh, as I might say, Kurd stomped. And that's what's going to happen to them. They cannot fight Turkey and Syria and Russia at the same time. And, quite frankly, we can't either. So, that's just not going to fly. It's really, really looking like the Syrian civil war is coming to a close. Like, on every front that you can think of. And no one's heard anything from ISIS lately. You <laughs> know. No one's heard anything from those groups, and I imagine that we won't. They're going to get put down as well. The chaos that allows them to thrive is slowly but surely being strangled away. As the great powers of the region now work to forge an end to this war. And it'll be good. It'll be good for everyone. Even the countries that want it to continue, oddly enough, It's just a matter of how will the United States and Israel respond. My bet is that we won't respond very well at all. Fortunately for America, we don't live there. Unfortunately for Israel, they do. So their bad decisions will lead to problems. Our bad decisions will lead to us being ejected from the region and hopefully never coming back. Then we have Jair Bolsonaro, hospitalized. He's in Florida, so he's getting treated in the United States right now, and we'll talk a little bit more about him in Brazil in a little bit. And last but not least, we have the UK seeking to host an international meeting in London on war crimes committed in Ukraine, and I have a very sneaking suspicion that they won't be looking too deeply into the actions of the Ukrainians, but rather on the Russians, as they are anti-Russian, and this whole attempt at regime change in russia is being played out in real time in ukraine and it's failing so you combine that with multiple calls from people in the ukrainian government zelensky being one of them to that there there can't be peace unless russia is punished unless russia is brought before a tribunal and unless putin is you know tried for his crimes when you when you add into the mixed rhetoric like that, and you see this now pop up, it's really clear that this isn't about actually prosecuting war crimes. This is about getting at the Russians. This That's what this is about. Now, maybe they will uncover some war crimes with these investigations. Although I imagine many war crimes will be overlooked on the part of the Ukrainians, like Bucha, which they blame on the Russians. Like various attempts at bombing nuclear power plants, which they blamed on the Russians. Hmm. Like shooting men who retreat from the line, which they blame on the Russians. Like using civilians as human shields, like the Ukrainians have been doing the entire war. They can't blame that one on the Russians, but I imagine that all those are going to be overlooked in favor of just getting at Russia. And that's sort of the, the ideological blind spot of a lot of the people who back the Ukraine in this war, and believe it to be a moral good and a moral imperative for us to do so. We're backing some really unsavory people, to say the least, uh, Nazis, quite frankly. But, we back these people, and why do we do it? Because Russia bad. Because Putin bad. I'm not gonna do it. I, I do not care. This is not my problem. But, That seems to be one of the biggest blind spots I see. Whether intentional or unintentional, and that depends on the specific person you're looking at, but that is the blind spot of the I stand with Ukraine crowd. And a lot of the stand with Ukraine politicians who have been doing their utmost to sell out country after country to the Ukrainians and empty out the coffers and the arsenals of their countries to the Ukrainians. Why? Well, it's not because they like the Ukrainians. It's because they hate the Russians. And that's really it. That Russia, this hatred of Russia, this blind hatred of Russia, is the greatest weakness of a lot of these people and a lot of these politicos. And for the people who are somewhat sober on Russia, they immediately throw that sobriety out the window when it comes to China. So when the Taiwan War kicks off, anything that could have been saved from and spared from being wasted in the Ukraine war is going to be wasted in the Taiwan war. I, I I don't know what to say about, well, uh, I don't know how I can tell you how I feel about it, which is that it's a terrible idea. Both of them intervening in Ukraine and Taiwan, but people are addicted to the intervention. People are addicted to feeling that they have to do something it's an addiction. That's what it is. I mean, why can't we stay out? India had no problem staying out. China has no problem staying out of Ukraine. Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, all these countries in our hemisphere have no problem staying out of Ukraine, yet we're the ones who are the, we have to go in, we have to do this, we have to do that. They're not doing a damn thing for the Ukrainians, and they are perfectly fine. So if it's not in their strategic interest to do, and they live on the same side of the planet as we do, in Mexico's case, on the same continent that we do, if Cuba is perfectly fine leaving Ukraine the hell alone, then that means it wasn't a strategic interest for them to get involved. And if it's not a strategic interest for them to get involved, then how in God's name is it a strategic interest for America to get involved? We are right here with them. It's insanity. It's an addiction. And the intervention addiction the the paradox of interventionism that that's what it is I mean we didn't used to have that addiction but we have it now we we can't stop even when even when it's blatantly clear that the intervention is going to hurt us even when it's blatantly clear that the drugs are harming us and detrimental to our health we just keep taking them we just keep popping those pills. Oh, we're going to intervene in Yugoslavia. We're going to intervene in Yemen. We're going to intervene in Syria. We're going to intervene in Libya. We're going to intervene in, in Ethiopia. We're going, to, we're going to intervene in, in, in uh, Ukraine. And we're going to intervene in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, uh, South Korea and Taiwan. And Vietnam and Afga- all these places. I, I almost said Afghanistan a second time. Uh, but I can say Iraq a second time. Ha-ha. We, we want to intervene in all these places. And what has that gotten us? It gets us nothing but problems every time. And we always complain about it after the fact. When we sober up and we go, "Ah, I'm never going to do that again. You know what, baby? I'm walking. I'm I'm never going to do that again. I'm, I'm done with the drugs. We say that. And then we relapse extra hard right back into the interventions. It is. It's sad, but it's funny at the same time. It's an addiction. It's an addiction. But our intervention addiction aside, this isn't about us today, at least not for the most part. Today, we have other things to get into. And we'll get into them in just a moment. And we're back to talk about Juan Guaido being ousted as the opposition leader in Venezuela. And let's just hold up one second Weren't we literally just talking about this guy last week? I went on a whole rant about these political exiles and how I don't want them coming to America because they lose and they don't want to concede that they lost, and so they just come here. You know, I, I, I went on a whole rant, and uh, you know, I wasn't expecting this. I was not expecting this at all. I was, I was just uh, a little upset, <laughs> a little upset, and a little concerned that these people who lose in their countries come here and then and then they want to continue the fight and it's like no you lost it's time to give it up and if you're gonna come here you ought to assimilate don't that that's that's my stance like you can't come here and then stay a person that belongs to another country no 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 if you're gonna come here and you're gonna have a permanent residence here you need to assimilate like I do not care where these people come from you're welcome to come, so long as, you know, we're willing to take you, and, well, uh I say come while you can, because I think that sometime in the near future, America may be setting a world, uh, if not a world record, definitely a personal record on how many people we can deport in a four-year space of time, but until that comes, I guess the floodgates are open for just about fucking anybody to come. I find it interesting... That none of the border control conservatives uh, want us to, you know, check and deal with people coming in like this just because he's a political figure. I, I just find it interesting. I just find that very interesting how the border is open if you're a major political figure who lost an election and you're a civilian now. The border is open for you. But everyone else, oh, oh, we, uh, I think we need some consistency here. But back to Juan Guaido last week he was ousted as the opposition leader in Venezuela he's as you might suspect by me saying that um, is it appropriate to call him major because he got a lot of you know press here in America but would it really be appropriate to call him a major political figure I'll just say political figure because you know if he's if he's ousted as the the opposition leader and the opposition wasn't even all that popular to begin with well I can't really call him a major figure but He was uh, the leader of that opposition, and he was heralded by the United States and Europe as the legitimate president of Venezuela. So, for us, he was painted as though he was this massive, major political figure, the rightful president of this country, and the, you know, and Maduro, he just stole the election from Juan Guaido, and all that goodness, but... I can't help but feel that that was a whole lot of, how we say, propaganda, considering what we can see now. Because legitimate, rightful leaders don't just get ousted in a matter of years after losing an election. They don't just get ousted from the the leadership of the opposition. They don't just get sidelined like that. If they're the legitimate leader, they're the legitimate leader, people are going to be serious about this guy. He just got ousted. And two years ago, well, actually, no, it's, it's 2023 now. Oh, my goodness. What was that? Twenty, twenty, so uh, about three years ago. There we go. Three years ago, he was present, uh, a guest of honor, so to speak, at Trump's State of the Union. Just three years ago, heralded as the rightful leader of Venezuela. And now he's being ousted as the, the opposition leader, let alone the president. He's being ousted as the opposition leader in Venezuela. This is not true, rightful, legitimate president material that we're looking at here. It just just going off observations of this situation here. That's not how that goes down. So, uh, and again, I, I find it very convenient. We were just talking about this guy and then all of a sudden this story pops up, but... And that was, you know, you know, I got to give it to myself. That was some brilliant timing, even if it was unintentional. But I'll I'll stop patting myself on the back now. But this shakeup has effectively killed this attempted regime change operation in Venezuela. Because that's what it was. I mean, what stake do we have in Juan Guaido being the president of Venezuela, other than we don't like Maduro? And given America's track record, we have very much not been above overthrowing people's governments. Look no further than Ukraine. So, that's all this was. Especially when you see how easily he was ousted as the opposition. This is not true president material. This is some random guy we decided we wanted to be in charge. And the regime change attempt has failed. He doesn't even have a, a strong enough base of support within that opposition party, or group, to stay in any sort of relevancy in terms of power. Not that they had power to begin with, all the power was in the actual government of Venezuela under Nicolas Maduro. But with the death of this regime change attempt, and Juan Guaidó now being promoted to citizen, this is essentially consolidated power unto the the present actual government of Venezuela, again headed by Nicolas Maduro, and this is not to say that Maduro is now able to govern without any challenge whatsoever. As some autocrat, is not exactly the best person, but he's the leader of this country. I I, I don't know how else to say it. I don't really care. <laughs> I don't really care. It's not my country. Why should I invest myself? In who leads these other countries? Sure, they're my neighbors. But all the more reason for me to stay out of their business. That's not what good neighbors do. Getting involved and trying to overthrow other people's government. And that's the reason Cuba hates us. right? And we embargo and sanction them as though they were the problem. <laughs> the, the Cuban Missile Crisis would never have happened had we left them alone. Instead of trying to overthrow their government and, and that failed attempt at Bay of Pigs. And that's just on the Cuba level. With our relations with them. Before you even get to. Turkey and the Soviet Union. Where we had nukes in Turkey. Right on the Soviet Union's borders. That. We could have avoided that situation. By not putting nukes in Turkey. And we could have avoided it at a second level. By not trying to overthrow Cuba's government. Like. Good neighbors don't do the things that we do. So it's like. Why, and from a more personal perspective, it doesn't mean anything to me who's in charge of Venezuela. I'm not Venezuelan. I don't live in Venezuela. I don't live in Cuba or Nicaragua or Costa Rica or or Brazil or Colombia. These things don't matter to America, and yet America pretends that it does and tries to overthrow people's governments. So, that's I mean, a thing that we do, but without any good reason, not that there would be a good reason, unless we're at war with the country. Now, that's the only good reason you can have for trying to overthrow someone's government. We're not at war with Venezuela. So, why would we want to overthrow Venezuela's government? What does it mean to us to have someone other than Maduro in charge? What is it What does it mean to us? What would we have gained... Even if Guaido was put on into power. Nothing. Nothing real. Nothing usable. Nothing tangible. Oh, great. Juan Guaido is the president. Now he has to deal with his parliament. Oh, and he loses. <laughs> oh, great. He's, he's the president now. What's the next step? What's the next part of the plan? There's no next part. It's just we don't like this government, so we're just going to get rid of it. Even though, leaving it be would mean nothing bad for us. What has Maduro done to America? He hasn't done anything. He's been purely focused on Venezuela. Maduro has been purely focused on Venezuela. The Castros have been purely focused on Cuba. Even the Kim dynasty in North Korea. They're purely focused on North Korea. They'll fire a missile or two here or there, but none of them are out to get us. So why do we make it such an imperative to try to get rid of certain people in certain governments as though they were? What what threat does Assad pose to the United States? You know, prior to the Syrians, what threat did he pose? Not, nothing. What what did Hassan Hus- Hussein mean to the United States? What did, what did him being in power in Iraq? mean for the citizens of the United States. A lot of people in the United States didn't even know his name. Until we invaded. That's how little all this actually means to America and Americans. But we're addicted to the intervention. And so we get ourselves involved in power struggles in other people's countries. And lately we've been on quite the losing streak doing that. I'll just throw that in there. but. And with this latest, this latest addition to that losing streak, the Maduro government can now consolidate power unto themselves. And again, it's not saying that Maduro's not going to be, uh, well, let me rephrase that. It's not saying that Maduro's going to be some autocrat, and I'm simultaneously not saying he's going to be the greatest guy, but come on now, he, he, they're, they're the obvious winners of this that opposition that ousted Guaido is still there. So it's not like they they got total power. The power struggle, this internal power struggle in Venezuela, is not quite over yet. But, without U.S. backing, and without this puppet candidate that we had with Guaido, this figurehead that we had with him being ousted, and without U.S. backing, it is likely that this opposition which, mind you, exists outside of the actual Venezuelan government, I just want to stress that again, it's likely that this opposition and all its uh, its members will gradually fade away. They don't have control over the government. They don't have control over any of the institutions. They don't have control over the military. Without U.S. backing and the U.S. propping it up, this faction will fade away and either make their way back into the actual government of Venezuela, as some sort of organized political party, or they'll go back into civilian life. Either way, I don't see this opposition sticking around in any meaningful way too much longer. With Guaido being ousted, that was was our guy. So, it looks like things might be getting, you know, normal again for Venezuela. Uh, That being said... It's, again, pretty obvious who the winners and losers of Guaido's ousting are, uh, especially when we consider that there doesn't seem to be a plan B for this regime change attempt in the country. And that obviously means that Nicolas Maduro, who's ridden through this storm, he wrote it out, he now wins, and America, who didn't bet the family farm, but, you know, bet a cow on it, we, we bet <laughs> the family cow, me and these farm references, that uh, we lost, okay, uh, we lost. And what this also means with Guaido's ousting is that the attack on the legitimacy of Venezuela's government will surely come to an end as well. Again, with that opposition not being backed and propped up by the United States, they're going to fade. And without the U.S. having some figurehead to prop up, then the attack on the legitimacy of Venezuela's government will also fade. So that's what we're looking at right now, because there doesn't seem to be a replacement for Guaido. And I don't, I don't think we have one. We're But we're even starting to see oil companies like Chevron placing their bets on who's going to be the guy in charge, and they're coming back into Venezuela to set up operations again. Which means they think that the current government is going to be there to stay. You don't make investments like that. If you think there's going to be upheaval. So, we can see that some positive changes are happening in Venezuela. Positive in the sense that they're winning the battle for their sovereignty against us. And that's the unfortunate part. We just don't know how to leave other people alone. Mm. But that's Venezuela. In other news, just slightly to their south, we have Brazil. Now, we've been talking about Brazil on and off since their election, because their election got wild. Uh, and by their election, I mean the aftermath of their election. That got wild. And th- there was some tension, some noticeable tension in the lead-up to it. But when it, once it went down, it really went down. And we saw uh, massive crowds who su- support Bolsonaro popping up in the streets... Like, to the point where you couldn't see the street for miles. And they they were not up. I almost said they were not upset. No, they were upset. They were not having it. And, well, I'm not entirely sure if the Lula supporters came out in such force. But granted, as far as they're concerned, they won the election. So, they're just going to stay right where they are. But these Bolsonaro supporters, they were not happy. They were very upset. and. My coverage of this situation has largely followed them because they, they were the ones making the headlines, really. And we see that that trend continues because on Sunday, a large mob of people, generally seen to be pro Bolsonaro, made their way into the Brazilian Congress, but not just the Congress. No, no, they went for the Sri Lanka model, where they went for the Congress, the presidential palace, and the Supreme Court. Uh, the, they they took a step up from Sri Lanka. They did all that in a single day, and there were there was a lot of them. Like mainstream outlets in America have already jumped jumped on the opportunity of calling this Brazil's January sixth moment, though uh, January eighth would be more accurate because it was on Sunday. But I'll digress. This was a major incident, a major escalation in this ongoing election saga. In Brazil because if you remember when the time came for Bolsonaro to concede the power well to transfer the power to da Silva Lula da Silva he didn't do it Uh, now Lula da Silva is in charge of the government right now he has the levers of power but when the election went down Bolsonaro at first refused to say anything Then, about a couple weeks later, he came out saying essentially that he was going to continue the fight and that he did not concede. He still has not conceded. Even now, as he rests in a hospital in Florida, he has not conceded. He was not present to hand over the presidential sash. And there was even, uh, I believe, a head of the Navy, which I found out in gathering news for this episode. There was a head of the Navy in Brazil who also refused to honor Lula as the legitimate president of Brazil. So this election saga continues and expands, as it is now expanded with that that naval officer, it is expanded into the military. It's expanded into the military. We see the crowds. You see these rioters making their way into the various branches of Brazilian government. And not in the way that you get elected. No, they're they're running in there. And we're seeing what can be described as chaos. <laughs> we're seeing chaos. And that's been a very consistent trend across well the new world, starting with the United States. I mean, goodness. We had a riot on our capital. Granted, our capital was very mild compared to what's going on in Brazil right now. it's It's been blown way out of proportion when you actually watch videos and footage of January 6th and you see how the people behave once they got inside. You know, once they got inside, well, it, it was nothing compared to the outside. Well, you had agitators and people that were actively egging on the protesters and the rioters to go in the building. They eventually did go into the building. You had videos of people who for some reason, whatever reason, we're already inside the building before the riot even happened, and you had coordination between people on the inside and the outside. There were lots of very interesting videos that have yet to be um, investigated and people that have yet to be talked to by the proper authorities, likely because it was an, an inside job, or at the very least, because it was not something organic. The march was organic. People went to go see Trump. But the breaking in of the Capitol was in many ways orchestrated, especially when you consider that Nancy Pelosi did not call for more security on the Capitol and that the door, the barricades were let down and the doors were opened for the people, the the massive crowd. And then they didn't hurt anybody. (laughs) And then they didn't hurt anybody when they got into the building. I mean, you have a crowd of that size. There's, if they wanted to overthrow the government, they would have overthrown the government on that day. It would have taken the military to come in to clean it up, not officers <laughs> nicely and neatly, you know, ushering out these protesters who, I'll just call them rioters, they're trespassing, you know, ushering out these rioters without the use of force. They did not need force to get them to leave the building, so it's, there was no insurrection. January 6th is very much overplayed and overstated and over-exaggerated. So comparing what's happening in Brazil right now to January 6th is not appropriate from a, you know, a specifics point of view, but from an imagery point of view, it's, it is what it is. It looks the same until you realize that the people in Brazil are throwing shit, (laughs) they're throwing things and they're breaking and entering uh, on their own, or at least that's what we that's what we can observe. But this has been a massive escalation in a series of escalations that have kicked off since Brazil's elections. Like this, I'm probably still going to be covering this like months from now, uh, as things continue to escalate. Unless something dramatic happens, or, or and by dramatic I mean unless things take a turn, because things keeps sliding down this path now maybe this is just turbulence and I'm overhyping this and it'll be over within a few months and perhaps a year and things will sort of calm down a little bit but for the time being this is pretty wild it's something close to home because Brazil is way closer to us than anything happening in China or Russia or Ukraine Brazil matters more to be frank with you At least it matters more to us. We live here. They're our neighbor. But this is the latest in a series of escalations. This massive, uh, almost siege, uh, this assault on these branches of the Brazilian government. Now, Lula, who is now the president of the country, he has responded to this incident uh, by calling it straightforwardly an attack on democracy. He has referred to the participants of this uh, ...this riot as fascists and fanatics. Lula then declared a federal security intervention in Brasilia. Uh, Brasilia is the new Brazilian capital. It's uh, It used to be Rio de Janeiro, if I'm not mistaken, but it's Brasilia. It's it's a city in the interior of Brazil. Not like Amazon interior, but like further inland from Rio de Janeiro. Nah. But he declared a, a federal security intervention in Brasilia... Which is set to last until the end of January. We'll see if that deadline gets sort of extended. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what comes of this. And I don't know. He promised to have the rioters identified and punished is what he also promised before I get into some of my thoughts on this. Uh, because I I don't know. I feel like this may only inflame the tensions and incense the rioters further. Like, uh, there's one way I see that this can be dealt with, which would be to have sort of an investigation, sort of what a lot of the Republicans were calling for after 2020 and after 2022, mm. but really after 2020 though, uh, investigation of the election, uh, thorough one at that so that you can put these doubts to rest, but It's not likely that Lula is going to go along with an investigation into the the very elections that propelled him into the presidency. Especially now, after such a a move might be seen as concessions to people he has now labeled as fascists and fanatics. So, perhaps he's backed himself into a corner where that's no longer an option. Maybe he just never would have gone along with that anyway. But even if he would have he's he's labeled them as fascists you don't concede ground fascists so what do you do you have to use other means so the investigation is now off the table the investigations are now instead going to be into the participants of the riot not on the election and so that that's how this is going to shape up now and yeah the the investigation the electoral investigation option is now taken off the table so now we're looking at The counter-investigation. That's what we're looking at right now. So, we might see martial law imposed if things continue in this way. Or even a a wall or a fence might be erected around their Capitol buildings, like what we saw in America after the... in, in our Capitol after January 6th. Now, even with all the chaos, and even with the continuing drama of this election and the fallout from it, I will not go as far as to say that Brazil is going to have a civil war. <clears throat> the thought popped up in my mind while I was finishing up the notes on the episode, but I don't think, at least as of now, I'm not going to go as far as saying that Brazil is going to have a civil war. That That's a, a very special kind of line that takes very special conditions to cross. It'll be apparent when it happens, but until then, you know, it's, it's this thing that doesn't just it, it, Civil wars don't happen very easily. I'll just say that much. Civil wars do not happen easily. So, I wouldn't go as far as to say that they're going to have one, or that they're close to having one. Because turbulence happens. But the situation does look tense. I will say that. And the, another thing that I will say is that this is what real division looks like. Not the, the fake phony divisions we hear about in American politics where uh, Americans disagree on rather petty issues and will get heated over it, but generally adhere to a lot of the same principles and ideas on how to move the country forward. Just, we vote for different people. And we have different approaches on how we think that that same outcome, that same desired outcome is to be... pro. This is what real division looks like, not not what we have in America. So, like... Uh, I'll just say that much, but as of the time of my recording this, Bolsonaro hasn't made any statements on this yet, he may, uh, when he gets out of the hospital, if he gets out of the hospital, well, we, we don't know, we do not know, but should he get out the hospital, he may make some statements on this, he might not, I mean, it took him uh, a, a week or two before he even said anything about the election, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if he took longer <laughs> before saying anything about this uh so we'll we'll see but even with this uh this crisis at home on the foreign policy scene lula hasn't diverged too far from bolsonaro on foreign policy i mean he's even remained committed to the BRICS. granted i wouldn't i don't see why he wouldn't but he's actually sort of doubled down on brazil's on brazil's involvement with the bricks he's doubled down on it and by extension i'll say that he's securing brazil's place in the new multipolar world order so lots of lots of interesting things happening in brazil and we're definitely going to be keeping our eyes on brazil if for no reason other than they won't allow us to look away so there's brazil for the time being and you know I feel, given that our next topic is going to be on America, I feel good getting away from Ukraine for a little bit, you know? It feels like every week I, we have to talk about Ukraine, so it's nice to nice to have this refresher talking about other things. Although, once that Russian offensive begins, we're going to be talking a whole lot about Ukraine again uh, until that thing is concluded, and then I'll have my reflections episode about a week or two after the war ends. But... It's nice to get away from the other big story of the day, you know, and talk about the other things. And speaking of those other things, we have something that happened in America, and it's something good and useful. Oh, my goodness, it's been so long since I've had good things to say coming out of my own country. It's I, I feel so proud. <laughs> I feel so, so hopeful. But last week, some House Republicans decided to employ the the force-the-vote strategy. And I'll get into where that strategy comes from in a bit. But last week, a vote for the Speakership of the 118th House of Representatives was held. And Representative Kevin McCarthy of California was expected to be, and eventually did, become the new Speaker of the House now that the republicans have a majority of 222 seats to democrats 213 but that did not come easily it took 4 days and 15 separate votes on the speakership for him to secure that position why did that end up being the case it end it had to be that way because representative matt gates a Prominent Republican, he led a number of Republicans from the Freedom Caucus to vote for a different speaker to deny Kevin McCarthy the position, and he numbered uh, Matt Gates together with about nineteen other Republicans. It, it, it fluctuated from time to time depending on the vote, but about twenty him and about nineteen other Republicans, about twenty all together. They voted for a different speaker on multiple occasions to deny Kevin McCarthy the position. Uh, On one occasion, he even proposed voting for Trump. And and by proposed, I mean he did vote for Trump to be the speaker, to which Trump uh, accepted, but, you know, we knew he wasn't going to be the speaker. And the way this worked is that you need 118 votes to become the majority leader or the Speaker of the House position. And around 18 Republicans, I I said 20, around 18 Republicans refused to vote for McCarthy unless he gave certain concessions to them. So when the Republicans have a majority of 222 and you need 118 votes to get the speakership, that means it only really took about five Republicans to not vote for McCarthy, to deny him the position, and they did it for 14 separate votes because he won on the 15th. Well, for 14 votes before that, they denied him the Speakership, something we haven't seen since, I believe, 1821 or 23, where the vote was held 12 times. So, these 18 Republicans used their leverage, because he needed their votes to even get to the 118 to begin with. He needed at least 13 of them to go along with him. Well... Actually, no, he needed at least 14, because you, you need that extra one to get to, the, get to the 118. If it was 13, he would only be at 117, but he needed them. And so they used that, the fact that he needed them to extract concessions. And as of now, I count about nine major concessions. These concessions include number one, and this one I believe to be the most brilliant concession of them all, Lowering the number of votes needed to usher in a vote of no confidence, which triggers the process of selecting a new speaker again, that was the first concession. He had to concede to allowing only one vote being the necessity for triggering a vote of no confidence, which essentially means that if he renegs on any of his promises, we're going to have more of what we saw this last week where they these Freedom Caucus Republicans just didn't vote for him. They just withheld the vote for four days and fourteen separate votes. They can do that again. They can do that again if he ever renegs on anything or if he does anything that they don't they don't like. Maybe some other issues will pop up and they'll say, hey, we don't want you to do that. We want you to do this. And if he doesn't want to do that, well, I guess you're not the speaker anymore. It's this one I believe to be the most brilliant concession they could have gotten out of this man. Absolutely brilliant. And I really, I just, I am actually impressed. I am genuinely, genuinely impressed at these politicians who, and they're America first. So I hope that they do something useful. And given what they, the other concessions they got out of him. I think that they might do something useful. We'll have to see, but I'll get into those other concessions so you can get an idea of what I'm looking at here. Because that was the first concession. The second concession was setting a a rule for single subject legislation. So you can't attack, there's a limit to the number of earmarks you can have. Well, there will be. These are things that he's going to put up for rules and up, to, up for votes on the House floor for, you know, the conduct. And he even managed, uh, they got concessions to put a number of these Freedom Caucus Republicans onto the Rules Committee so they could they can make these rules. And they have the majority necessary to force the rules through. So they got that concession out of him. They got this single, they got him to concede on having this single subject rule on legislation and a proposal to limit the number of earmarks onto a bill. So the bill has to be a single subject only. If you're passing a bill on, say, tariffs, you can't throw on to that funding for a, a school in your district or on a, a, a farm bill or something related to sanctions on another country or f- Ukraine funding. You, c- you can't just throw all those things together. You have to do single subject voting. That's what they're proposing. That's what they got him to concede for on a vote. The third concession, they made McCarthy promise to keep his political action communi- committees, the these PACs, from interfering in elections. And now why would they want him to do that? Because he and Mitch McConnell worked together to thwart a lot of the more MAGA Republicans in favor of uh, not MAGA Republicans, a.k.a. useless. <laughs> but they, they wanted him to stop doing that. So he they got him. To concede on that. By holding the... Uh, I almost feel like they held him at gunpoint. <laughs> but they got him to concede that. Keep his money and his PACs from interfering in elections. So that they can get more MAGA Republicans in. Because they're not going to stop their funding from going to these Republicans. They're not going to stop that. They're going to they're gonna get their guys. The next time there's elections. And they got McCarthy to stay out. So they got that. The fourth concession... They got him to promise a floor vote on congressional term limits and border security. So that's really like two concessions. Both of them are all right. And as a matter of fact, I am loving that term limits proposal. Although, I do have an issue with that. I'll I'll get into that issue later. But some solid concessions so far. Uh, the sixth concession uh, was that they promised a proposal to cap federal spending at 2022 levels, and I'm loving that. I'm I, I really like upper limits on federal money and federal spending. Uh, that there's been talk about that one and what it means for the defense budget, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, number seven was they pro- he promised an investigation, a proper investigation into January sixth, the eighth was the removal of the COVID emergency and the emergency powers. And the ninth was the holding of a new church committee to investigate abuses of power on the part of the FBI and other agencies. So those are the nine major concessions that I'm counting right now. And we'll see if more come along the way. Because remember, with that first concession, even after they've gotten everything they wanted with this first round of concessions, they can just call up a vote of no confidence on him, and go through this whole process again and force him to get more concessions for other issues that they might not have brought up right now. And that's the brilliance of that, that first concession. That forced the vote, where they withheld that leverage that they had. They can now reapply it at any moment that they want for the next two years. They can, this, where they held up the vote for four days straight, they can do that again at any moment. And I just can't stress how brilliant that first concession was. It's really, really smart that they did that. And I, I, I'm I'm just impressed. I, I really am. I came to expect the absolute least from my politicians. And by the least, I mean expecting the least... But really being okay <laughs> with getting even less than that because you know we know who we know who we're dealing with here. But I'm impressed. My standards were in the negatives, but I am very much impressed. Very impressed. And I'm on board a good deal of these proposals. We don't need Ukraine funding rolled into bills on agriculture or school funding in America. You shouldn't be able to have sanctions rolled into a bill on tech companies or earmarks for a bridge or or a school in a bill related to navigation and electric vehicles. Those things just don't go together. So I'm I'm perfectly fine with single issue voting in the House. That's a great thing. And I believe that's how it used to be. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's good to go back to that. If we're going to vote, if you're going to do something, you should vote on it. Don't just you know, try to ramrod the whole thing through with a bunch of trash that people don't actually want to vote on. If you want to get an issue passed, if you want to get a bill passed, you have to get it voted on. That's the way this has to go. I am perfectly okay with that. Uh, we, we, we don't need any of the, the trash that we've had lately. We need We need a streamlining of the vote, a streamlining of the congressional vote. I'm very much in favor of term limits, although, although I feel that that one should be a constitutional amendment because it just doesn't sit right with me that Congress is going to be the one to impose term limits on Congress. That's not checks and balances. That's blind faith. No, maybe we can get the amendment later on, but I guess for the time being, this is good, but I really don't trust that this is going to stick if it's just Congress. I mean, because if, if the term limits are imposed on Congress, then Congress can just vote to get rid of their own term limits later on. We need a constitutional amendment for that, like we have on the presidency. And I'm even in favor of, con- of term limits on the judiciary, because with new technology, the lifespans of people get longer and longer, and a judge is a lifetime appointment. I think we need to start thinking about term limits on the judiciary, I say, a solid 50 years. May I, I, I think that's a good start, you know? We don't want forever judges. Uh, technically, it's supposed to be forever, but forever means a, a, a longer amount of time than it used to. Uh, people didn't live that long back then. People lived to like 40 and 50. Now people live to like 60, 70, even 80. E- even 80. Heck Biden and Trump are pushing into the 80s. So like, these lifespans for these people, especially for the, the rather wealthy, they're getting longer. We're, we're pushing up to the point where it would be normal for someone of affluence to reach 100 years of age. We're, we're getting to that point. So what happens then with the judiciary? I think we need 50-year term limits on the judiciary. Now, that's just my proposal. That's my proposal. And that would also have to be a constitutional amendment. But that that that's how I feel about uh, term limits. They need to be constitutional amendments, not we feel like we're, our limit today is going to be eight years, and maybe tomorrow we don't feel like we need limits at all. I just... I do not trust Congress to with <laughs> to constrain themselves. That's not how checks and balances work, but I am in favor of you know these term limits. I'm also very much in favor of placing upper limits on federal spending. I mean, the military budget alone has just gotten out of control. like I have talked extensively about how America doesn't need a million man army, but looking at that budget is just wow, like. Last year, they bumped it up to three quarters of a trillion. That was the military budget we had for this year. Well, not this year, it's twenty twenty three, but for all of 2022, the 720 something billion dollars. And then uh, just last year, right before the year ended with that omnibus bill, they, they tried to bump it up to $856 billion. It's like, what is this? What new threat popped up where we need all this money? It was like, what are we? Because we, we're not going to replenish our stockpiles from, from Ukraine. All the money we give to these companies, that a, a trillion dollars, three quarters of a trillion dollars isn't enough to fill up our armory? Yeah, that is a blatant lie. I mean, honestly, if the Pentagon can lose two trillion dollars twice when it is audited, that does not mean give more money. That means you're irresponsible. You should not be trusted with that money. You should not be trusted. We need to reduce the military budget. That might even be a way of bringing the troops home. If you don't have the budget to wage the war, then you have to end it. You have to come home. If we don't have the funding to keep these bases operational, the troops have to come home. I think we could use the budget to bring our troops home and to get out of these military alliances. At least in a de facto manner, if we don't have troops in Europe, what's the threat of us going to war? I'll just throw that out there, but yeah, I'm I'm very much in favor of placing upper limits on federal spending, especially if people are going to complain about inflation, because uh, the Repu- that's something the Republicans have been complaining about. So we'll see if they actually go along with that limit. Uh, I imagine that they'll come up against opposition from the national defense hawks, and by defense I mean the war hawks, because we're not defending ourselves by being in Syria. We're not defending ourselves, but being in Ukraine, we're waging war. That's what this is. The war hawks are going to be very much opposed to that limit on federal spending because it means that the military budget can't keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger without taking away from the, the spending on other parts of the federal budget. So they're going to be opposed to that, and we'll see who's actually concerned with inflation and who just wants to fight a war. Who is concerned about the well-being of Americans, and who is more concerned about how many bombs we can drop on other people, and how they can enrich themselves in the process? We'll find that out, should this vote come to fruition. Again, we have to stress that this isn't necessarily a guarantee that any of this is going to happen. These are just concessions that we can see happening. So I'll just stress that. But I'm in favor of the upper limits. I'm very very much in favor of the upper limits the border security is just common sense and so is the COVID thing, the COVID emergency is over so the emergency powers ought to be relinquished as well now, I'm not entirely sure if anything useful is going to come out of another January 6th investigation but I guess we'll just have to wait and see Uh, we have a new church committee now that one, I like I like that one a lot Uh, and hopefully it leads to the abolition of the FBI. And the church committee was a committee back in the 70s where they were investigating the wrongdoings and the abuses of power of the FBI and the CIA and other three-letter agencies. It got shut down, and nothing meaningful came out of it. So hopefully something useful comes out of this one. At the very least, we're going to learn a good deal which can help fuel the fire for arguments like abolishing the FBI. You know? Because... Everything that comes out of these investigations will be brought up in the presidential elections. And he who sides with the FBI when all is said and done is going to lose. He who sides with the CIA when all is said and done is going to lose that battle. So all this may actually end up helping Trump when he, you know, ends up on the debate stage. Which actually is going to be this year because of uh, debates and primaries. Or it might not. <laughs> it might not. I mean he's so, he sort he didn't he didn't do a single debate until he got to Biden when he ran for re-election. so we'll see this time. If some Republicans come out of the woodworks to try to oppose him, they will be crushed definitively by the one true leader of this country. But yes, I think that these are some really good concessions. I would really like to see these. I would really like to see a good number of these, although the, that term limit's one I really want as a constitutional amendment, but uh, look, I'll take what we can get. I will take it. I will take it. So, yes, I think that this was a stroke of brilliance. It, it really was. I, 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 I was impressed. My expectations were in the negatives, and I, I'm sure you all feel me on that one, the our expectations were way in the negatives on these people, especially if you're not voting Republican. <laughs> but I, you color me impressed. Color me impressed. But uh, I'll just stress again before we, before you sort of wrap things up here. That first concession is a motherfucker. That first concession. We could see McCarthy, we, we can see this drama where McCarthy is not the speaker again for multiple days f- multiple times throughout the year because they can do it over and over and over again and they can they can just sit there they can just sit there and not let him be the speaker we could have multiple de facto government shutdowns by them doing this if McCarthy doesn't do what they want I mean I mean it's it's crazy M- McCarthy doesn't have a choice courtesy of that first concession that they got him to give he has no choice but to go along with all these things that they want him and that they got him to agree on. And if McCarthy has anything to say about it, they'll trigger a no-confidence vote. They being those MAGA Republicans who withheld their votes. So the MAGA agenda will reign supreme in the House. Ish, the America First agenda is going to reign supreme in the House. And that's there's nothing that McCarthy can do about it. They'll just trigger a no-confidence vote. If he has anything to say about it. It's almost like they have, they're holding this guy at gunpoint. But I... They don't have a gun. They just have leverage. And a good deal of it. But. But. While that might all be fine and dandy. Again. Let's not forget who we're dealing with. These are politicians. So. We shall see. If anything actually comes to pass. But. As a side note. I thought it was very interesting. Watching this go down. This force the vote strategy at work. Because this was not an original thought from the Republicans. This was actually a strategy that came out of the DSA handbook, the Democratic Socialists of America, that Jimmy Dore championed for just two years ago when it was the Democrats who had a narrow majority in the House, and he was talking about having the progressives, people like AOC, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Talib he was talking about having them use their leverage because they had the sufficient numbers to block Nancy Pelosi from getting the speakership and keeping her from getting to the 218 that she needed to be the speaker. He championed having the progressives withhold their vote from Nancy in order to get concessions. Specifically, he was talking about a vote on the House floor for Medicare for All. And that was all he was cham- arguing for, uh, straightforwardly, now. He says they could have used their leverage to do anything, but he was really rallying for that Medicare for all vote. And this was in in the height of the COVID pandemic or the, the scamdemic as some might call it. This is at the height of COVID. Everyone's worried about the virus. Everyone's worried about vaccines and everyone's worried about healthcare. Everyone's worried about the healthcare workers. So imagine had this happened back then, in the early days of 2021, when the the house, the, the, the Democrats were trying to get a new house going. Imagine had this happened. So uh, watching this force the vote strategy work in real time for the Republicans two years down after the fact, it has been very, very interesting. Uh, he's he he got man jimmy Dore got absolutely ragged on for proposing this which was strange because this was supposedly a the progressive position medicare for all and to see so many other of the so-called progressives not go along with it and to see the squad and the house progressives pretend not use their leverage at all to do anything that was a bit of a surprise that was a bit of a surprise uh but really, it was the coverage from other progressive news outlets and news commentators, other than Jimmy Dore himself, fighting against this policy that they championed with a strategy that came out of the Democratic Socialists of America. This was their their policy, their strategy, and they didn't want it. Jimmy Dore really had to basically stand alone on this one. I, I It was very interesting to watch. This thing that he championed come to fruition for the exact opposite party and the exact opposite part of the party that he himself aligned with. It was very strange, but I'll, I'll be honest, very nice. <laughs> but it did make me—it did make me think, because that the House progressives could have done this two years ago, when it was the Democrats who had that slim majority. Without their votes, Nancy Pelosi could not have been able to become the House Speaker. And the Republicans didn't have the votes necessary to become the Speaker either, so there was there was a little bit of talk of McCarthy becoming the Speaker back then, but they didn't have the votes. So it, it got me thinking, what if they had done it? And more importantly, what if they had gotten out of Nancy Pelosi, what if they had gotten that first concession that these House Republicans got out of McCarthy? Where it only takes one vote to trigger a vote of no confidence and restart the selection process for a Speaker of the House. What if the progressives had gotten that out of Nancy Pelosi? Because that, that first concession is just a work of magnificence. I tell you what, that is just leverage, purified, refined form, pure leverage, refined leverage. Ah, ah. Uh, that is, if if leverage could be seen and felt and and, and tasted, <laughs> that first concession was it. What if the progressives had gotten that out of Nancy Pelosi? Like, I, I was wondering this uh, in, in the hours before I recorded the podcast. How many other votes could they have forced? You get that first concession out of Nancy Pelosi, that, that's a wrap. Now you can force a vote on Medicare for all. You can force a vote on minimum wage. You can force a vote on anything. You can force a vote on defunding, uh, sanctioning, and divesting from Israel, and boycotting Israel. You could you could fund you could fund whatever projects you wanted. You could force a vote on giving free free sick days for workers across the country. You could have. They could have did so much, we could be li- we could be living in a, a different country. In some ways better, in some ways worse off. I'm, I do not trust the government with that the kind of power that the progressives would bring upon the government should they got their way. It's not that I think that they mean badly. I don't, I don't think that they mean poorly for the country. But the power that they seek to give and invest into the government for the execution of their policies, I don't trust the government with that power. But imagine what would have happened had they done the same with their leverage two years ago. How many other votes could they have forced? Because I'm sure some of you, my, my lovely listeners, f- probably fall on that side of the political spectrum. What would that have done where if the progressives were the ones just running roughshod over the Democrats for two years? Using that leverage and just straight weaponizing it like a, a loaded pistol against the Democrats how many other votes could they have forced it's really a profound thought to keep in your mind cuz they they could have done it all they could have they didn't need a majority in congress of straight progressives they only needed that handful of progressives in the right place at that right time and that was the right time and they missed it and now the Republicans get to have their the victory lap that the progressives should have had two years ago. I'll be perfectly honest with you. The progressives should have been doing this. We would have been talking about Medicare for All two years ago. Had they done this. At the height of COVID-19. It's just something to think about. how Just how differently all this could have gone. Had a different group of people done the exact same thing just two years earlier. But... I'll leave that to you. And <laughs> hats off to Jimmy Dore. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We have a lot of changes happening around the world. But, as always, we will have fun watching those changes together. And now I've been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.